I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about The Big Lebowski, the 1998 film written and directed by the Coen brothers. I'm joined today by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Aran. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. So I'm excited to get into this film because I had not seen this in a long time. I had seen it once and was unimpressed. And so then it was, uh, this was thrust upon me as a way to force me to watch it again. Excited to talk about that and uncover some of the things that I, um, uh, appreciated this time around. And we can get into all of that. Before we do, I wanted to just throw out a question for Spotify listeners. What's your favorite Coen Brothers film? I think that's uh, an interesting array of answers I am looking forward to seeing. And I don't know the answer to that question myself. I think that's a thing that I'm slowly trying to figure out because I'm not super familiar with their filmography. I'm not a Trisha that has seen all of the movies a million times. So <laughs> there are ones on there that I haven't seen. I'll go and I'll go and watch those. It's kind of a revealing question. It's interesting. Yeah, because right. their filmography is so diverse in a lot mm. of ways. I was going to say, I bet you have not seen Miller's Crossing, but that's one that I would recommend to you. Okay. I think you'd like it. That one and Blood Simple after Brian, you recommended it recently on the podcast. Yeah. Or ones that I'm like, all right, I got to go check those out. But the first step has been taken further into their filmography with The Big Lebowski. So why don't we start with just you guys? What was your first exposure to this film? What was your expectations? Uh, And how did you walk away from that, that first screening? Brian, why don't you start us off? It's interesting because there are some movies, I saw them all around the same time, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Big Lebowski, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where it was so dense the first time I saw it. Like, I, I couldn't even stay awake. Like, I fell asleep and like I, watching them and... You fell asleep during Monty Python? Maybe not that one, but it definitely <laughs> okay. Fear and Loathing and Big Lebowski. I think my friend was like, you should see this movie at like 10 p.m. And, uh, and my brain just shut down. It was like, I can't handle mm. all of this stuff at once. So I definitely didn't like it wasn't something I saw and fell in love with. But all of those movies became movies. You know, you and your friends would quote and you'd hear quotes and you think about it. And then someone would put it on and you'd watch it a couple of times. So it's like, I can't even tell you the first time I saw Big Lebowski the whole way through. It just over the course of a year or two years went from a movie that I hadn't seen to a movie I had seen 10 times, probably just mm-hmm. college. We're back from, you know, our night out and we're just put it on, put on Big Lebowski, you know, and quoting <laughs> it and all that kind of stuff. It's a tricky movie because one, it is so dense that you need to have seen it, you know, two, three, four times just to, to really not have like the plot in your brain too much and to just sort of not be worried. There's so many new characters being introduced and just sort of enjoy the movie for what it is. And then you start to notice these little Steve Buscemi's eyebrows like going up at a weird part (laughs) or like a face that Brant makes when the dude says something. And then it also has the problem of the expectation thing, right? Like so many people I know, especially my like female friends in college, the first time they saw this movie was with eight dudes huddled around the TV, pointing at the screen and looking at them for a reaction being like, right, isn't this hilarious? Oh, this is going to be the funniest uh-huh. thing. Oh, isn't this great? And like, no one's going to enjoy that movie that way, you know? And so I think it's definitely a movie where you, you sort of need to see it with no expectations and see it twice. And like, that's a hard thing to get someone to do. <laughs> right. So they're just like, oh, that movie where John Goodman is a dick all the time. Like, I don't, I, I, I didn't like it because he was just, I didn't like that character. Like, you can only make it so far if you don't kind of give this movie, it's, um, if you don't give it time. Right. Fair to say. My first experience was similar, like in that vein. I don't remember exactly the details, but Alex, I'm pretty sure it was at your apartment early on when I had just moved to Los Angeles. And it was one of those things where it's like, 
wait a minute, you haven't seen the Big Lebowski. Like, sit down, so good. you're gonna love it. Like, sit down, hold on, watch it. This is so great. Somebody hijacks your evening, right? <laughs> just like, and like, I didn't have a good reason to like leave, and I was young <laughs> enough. There's no, I had nothing else to do, so it was like, I have to watch this movie now. But I think we even watched it over two nights. Like, I don't know that I was even. I don't know. It was not an ideal first experience. Interesting. I forgot about this. I didn't know that that was related to my apartment i have not because a lot of people have been like wait you don't like the big about you don't like what and so i've had to explain myself several times so it was interesting seeing it again and in a different context and being able to like settle in and appreciate all these little things like you're saying brian where it's like people's reactions in the background and kind of knowing that i'm not really needing to worry about the plot Mm -hmm. and so not having that responsibility helps you kind of sink into just relax the rhythm yeah. of the dialogue and these dynamics and all these interesting things i also felt a real connection to donnie this time and mm. i yeah. <laughs> feel like i would be donnie in this world like i like him <laughs> the expectations and that pressure of you will like this movie is not a, a good environment to see it in trisha what was your first exposure if you remember to <laughs> the big lebowski uh well it sounds like brian was there because he described it <laughs> pretty accurately uh. <laughs> um, like, I was hanging out at somebody's apartment in college and there was a guy that I had a crush on at the time. It was like a bunch of film people, bros probably, <laughs> who were like, we're watching The Big Lebowski. Wait, you've never seen it? And it, they, you know, again, hijacked my entire evening. But I was already like kind of into the Coens at that point. So I was kind of like ready to get on board with it i also was in no way gonna act like i didn't get it or wasn't impressed because i was trying to impress <laughs> uh-huh. that guy that i had a right. crush on <laughs> i was gonna act like i liked it no matter what but i really did have a good time like i loved raising arizona like i had already seen raising arizona and i feel like if you can get into the rhythm of raising arizona a little bit you know there's some it's got some Coen Brothers y, like, do you like watching people who are bad at crime try to like <laughs> do crime mm-hmm. and and be idiots? And if you like that, then you can you can get into the the Big Lebowski pretty quickly. So yeah, and, and I'd already seen No Brother Where Art Thou as well and really, really enjoyed that. And then I've just seen it like so many times since then. I don't know. It just is so funny. It's hard to describe why. Like everyone is so clueless at all times (laughs) and just yeah you're talking about the rhythm of the dialogue and the way that it flows and it is certainly one of the most quotable movies of all time but yeah everyone is so wrong like no one says a correct thing (laughs) in this movie (laughs) ever basically um or if they do they don't know they're saying a correct thing and yeah, I just love this movie with all of my all of my little heart. It does so many it checks so many Cohen Brothers boxes. A lot of people consider it to be one of their best and it's certainly one of their most famous and if you're a Cohen Brothers fan at all, you've you've revisited it many times and that's kind of where it abides in in my heart. <laughs> yeah, it it does kind of create this weird tone mood like there's this like weird sweet spot that you can kind of arrive in where it's like once you like I was saying once you let go of having to track the plot a little bit there's still enough momentum and we can talk about the dude and protagonists and stuff there's there's still enough there that you're on a boat you're still moving forward down this river but just that like (laughs) a comfortable like lazy like pace like it's like the jungle cruise or something I don't know it's like it's it's enjoyable without too much pressure it's like a tumbling tumbleweed you know there you go 
Exactly. <laughs> I thought you were going Apocalypse Now again. Just like every movie now, you're like, every look, they're moving forward. <laughs> we're on a boat. Right. Okay, cool. Alex, what about you? What was your first experience? Yeah, I actually, I can't remember clearly when I first watched it. Probably high school on DVD or something. Um, yeah, it's, it's another one of those movies that I just, I saw at some point And for sure, the first time I saw it, it was that experience of trying to follow the plot, trying to make sense of it in a way that the movie like doesn't need you to make sense of it. I got why some of the characters were memorable, but I didn't necessarily enjoy the movie overall because I was engaging with it in the wrong way. I've only seen it a couple times since then. I've, I, I guess we watched it in Hollywood at my apartment there, <laughs> but it was really great to revisit it because this time I was able to really just sink into the movie's rhythm and just like savor the hell out of the performances. Yeah. I just love everybody in this movie and I love <laughs> watching them. I love the way they deliver their dialogue. I, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, like as soon as his first scene starts, I am just yes. like in heaven. I'm like, this is so great. <laughs> it was like a, just a purely pleasurable experience to revisit this movie. And it was funny because I've seen it a few times now, I guess uh, I was able to actually follow the plot and yeah. it was fun mm -hmm. If you see it enough times, it is all there. Like you can follow the plot. The plot is just a series of basically accidents and misunderstandings and screw ups that all amount to nothing. Like Correct. nobody was ever really in danger. Nothing ever really happened. Everybody just kind of assumed stuff that was wrong. And it's a fun, almost like circular plot where it's just nothing actually happened. You're right. <laughs> yep. Which, which is really fun. And, and I love it. Yeah, I think that one thing that struck me rewatching it is kind of what you were saying, Michael, you do still feel like you are going somewhere. So it's like, even though the actual mechanics of the plot are sort of complicated and aimless, every scene is driven by the previous scene, right? So it's never yeah. just, we're just hanging out in some place and like there's a new thing happening it is always well because they stole the rug i had to go see the guy and then because bunny was kidnapped they had to hire me and then because i took the rug mod came and put, knocked me out and because yeah, she yeah. knocked me out she sent me to a doctor it was for a different reason than i thought you know it's like every even like the most silly little scene it actually is all part of this it's all about like the car or the rug or bunny or you know it's all being held together for as many new characters are being introduced and as many like kind of revelations are happening is all sort of being held together by the fact that we do always feel like we are somewhat grounded and we keep coming back to the bowling alley to sort of like check in. So right. it's like, it is a nice, like it alternates kind of here's a new plot point, a new character. Da, da, da. Now we're going to come back to the bowling alley with these familiar characters. We're going to kind of talk for a little bit, <laughs> let you settle. And then we're going to go off into the next crazy adventure. And I think that helps a lot. Yeah. And, you know, the dude is still an active enough protagonist, right? Things mm -hmm. happen to him, but he still is making some choices and those choices lead to consequences. So he is still driving the plot feels like too strong of a word, maybe, but, but effectively, you know, like it's, it's him, you know, a lot of the times it's reporting back at the bowling alley, like you're saying, like telling the, his friends about what's going on. And then they suggest a thing. And then he's like, well, that's an interesting idea. I'm going to take this action that's going to then cause all these other ripple effects that are all reactions to this one simple thing that I tried to do. I think that helps create enough like momentum and agency that you're you're with it and you're not just like watching dominoes kind of fall willy-nilly like there is still some drive and a goal there uh, mm -hmm. behind all everything that's happening on screen yeah i think it's the thing where 
you're hitting on it exactly, Michael. We think of the dude as being passive and easygoing. But when you actually look at him in any given scene, he's not that passive. He's sort of constantly pushing back against what people are telling him and arguing with what people are telling him, right? Like, this aggression will not stand, man. Like, <laughs> he, he is asserting himself from scene to scene in such a way that does then drive people to react to him and gets him into the situations that he ends up being in. Um, and so you, know, you see that in the scenes where, like, even as he's being, you know, pulled into like a car, like thrown out of one car and pulled back, you know, into the limousine. Beverage here, man. <laughs> I love it. Even when he gets into the car, right? And, and we're like, oh, he now he's totally fucked because the big Lebowski is there to to scold him for not handing in the money mm-hmm. or whatever. He's still making an argument and fighting back and reasoning and like all of these things. And so, you know, we think of him as like a stoner slacker, like deadbeat guy. And that's certainly part of the dude's essence. But also, he does a lot in this movie and gets himself deeper and deeper into this situation that he's in. I think this is might, might be why he's such a beloved character is because it wouldn't be fun to watch just a stoner dude like not do anything or like not ever care or just kind of truly be passive, like completely out of it and just along for a ride. He's not even aware of what's right. happening. He both has this incredibly relaxed attitude towards life where he is just almost kind of just confidently going with the flow. Like he trusts in the universe just to kind of carry him at a certain point. Like he he never gets so stressed out. He's like really freaking out. Like there's almost like a threshold that he stays like a certain amount of chill at all times. And yet he does care. He's like. They're going to kill her, man. Like, they got this girl. They're going to kill her. They're like, going to kill like, that poor woman. Yes, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's like he, he does care about things. And he has, a, he has somewhat of a conscience. And he, you know, he's, he's just trying to be reasonable and trying to, like, let's all just talk about this, man, and, like, figure this out. There's a sweet spot they accomplished with that character that I, it's, that is actually a very difficult thing to accomplish. Somebody mm-hmm. who right. can feel so passive yet be active. And the combination of that makes him just utterly likable. Like, I I just love that character so much and feel comfy and cozy, like, going on this boat ride with him. <laughs> right. <laughs> Why are we on a boat? We're in a bowling alley. <laughs> like- <laughs> but if, I don't know, it feels, it feels like the flow and, like, the pace, it feels like a, like a chill boat ride. That's okay, a good right. analogy for the flow of the movie. Or surfing. They're actually surfers, which is not much in this movie, but they're supposed to be. No, s- surfing takes... Way too it's much way energy. too much physical exertion. Yeah. yeah. Arm, <laughs> upper arm strength. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, fine. All right. We're on It's a Small World and we're just sort of going from like <laughs> to like the next crazy place, right? A lazy river and like a water yeah. park where you're just like chilling right. and floating along. Okay, that I like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There you go. With your white Russian in one hand. Yes, yeah. I love it. This episode of Beyond the Screenplay is brought to you by Mubi a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film. Whether it's a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece, there is always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected. It's like your own personal film festival streaming anytime, anywhere. 
For example, they have 2009's Dogtooth by Yorgos Yanthimos, director of The Favorite, which we talked about in a recent episode. If you're in the UK, they also have Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is a movie I'm obsessed with. It's one of the best movies that I've seen in recent memory. So there are a ton of movies on movie, some of which you've definitely heard of, and even cooler, many of which you haven't, which are awesome and worth checking out. You can try Mubi for free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash Beyond the Screenplay. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Beyond the Screenplay for a whole month of great cinema for free. Thank you to Mubi for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. You take a movie like Shaun of the Dead where it's about a lazy character and you have to do the work to establish the flaw and then inciting incident, now he has to change, right? That's not the point of the dude being lazy. That's just sort of a character trait that's there. So we have Sam Elliott telling us he's the world, like laziest worldwide man. And then we see him, you know, writing a check for some milk while he wears his jellies and his bathrobe and stuff. <laughs> and then right off the bat, like guys come to his house, take the rug, like now we're in motion. So it's not, it's not a traditional, like if his flaw, quote unquote, is laziness, we're not spending the whole like first act with him as a lazy person. We right off the bat get the action going. The first thing has happened that's now going to drive the next thing, which is going to drive the next thing. So it's like you're saying, Alex, even if his character trait is laziness, we don't actually see that a lot in this movie because he's always either being thrust into a new situation or he is actively trying to to make something happen. Yeah, he's, he's never boring. Like we're, we don't have right. long, boring scenes of him being lazy. Something's always <laughs> happening to him or around exactly, him. Exactly. Yeah. Even when he's lying in his bathtub listening to whale sounds. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. Far out, man. <laughs> because it's the thing that happens to him does attack his values. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is this, you know, it's not right. Like the rug tied the room together. Like there is something <laughs> that he cares about and yes. it's just this rug. And so maybe in another situation, he would be lazy, but this is attacking something that is a core belief in there enough to get him up and then go challenge the big Lebowski and then get him into all this stuff. So there is, again, all all the characters do have values and perspectives on the world and (laughs) what it should be and what it shouldn't be. And so much of the comedy also comes from that and those worldviews clashing and kind of uh, (laughs) being applied with a lot of energy to things that aren't that big of a deal. I'm talking about Walter, obviously, I guess at this point, just, you know, (laughs) him pulling the gun out during the bowling alley conversation. Like, did you cross the line or not? That's getting at a core world belief that Walter has that is deep seated and it's expressing itself in an extremely exaggerated way. And so it's funny, but also allows there to still be cohesion in all of the characters like for as crazy as those characters are they do feel consistent and things that are set up about them and their personalities do pay off and come back and walter Mm -hmm. is there as part of the investigative team like at different periods and his unique set of skills (laughs) or lack thereof contribute (laughs) yes to the events so it's it's creating this impression of these lazy dudes but all the character work and the writing construction is there to make them still feel three-dimensional and compelling and keep you engaged throughout the film yeah Mm -hmm. you pointed to something that's really fun in this movie which is putting the dude in rooms with all these different perspectives and worldviews and types of people just 
seeing them kind of like do their worldview at him and <laughs> watch him respond to it and kind of just right. not really ever care about any of their worldviews. Like they just kind of bounces off of him of like, whatever, man, like, what are you saying? There's something just so constantly entertaining about having the dude react to or deal with or not react to these kind of extreme people. You've got like the big right. Lebowski is this, you know, he's actually, you, you find out he's actually just, you know, living off his, deceased wife's like trust fund or whatever but you know he has this rugged individualism point of view and like you're a bum and bums never <laughs> succeed mm -hmm. it's great to watch that at the beginning the philip seymour Hoffman butler character watching mm -hmm. him try to like deal with like the dude or with <laughs> bunny or just like trying to transform everything into like the proper version of itself but it just it's just a losing battle right mm -hmm. the, i think the whole movie is that like every scene feels like that and i i I never get tired of it. You're getting at the reason why this movie has been pulled apart philosophically so much, mm. which is that there is so much sort of, I want to say theology, but philosophy that is jammed into the dialogue where other characters are discussing these huge sort of concepts about life. And the dude is, you know, essentially choosing to concern himself only with sort of what's right in front of him. Where, you know, you have Walter's, this is not nom, this is bowling, there are rules, right? Like, <laughs> he's talking about something much bigger than what's going on. And that's why he gets himself worked up to the point where he's going to pull a gun on Smokey, you know, in the bowling alley. And he, you know, is relating everything to being about Vietnam. So it's like a sociopolitical, like war with him all the time right and he's quoting lenin and herzl and all this kind of stuff yeah <laughs> right exactly he's a faux philosopher which yeah, john goodman does <laughs> so well in so many coen brothers movies <laughs> right where he's like i'm gonna tell you something about life and the universe and then yeah you have you know as you pointed out the big lebowski character but then also Maud is there mm -hmm. talking about like art and <laughs> you know men and women and sex and and talking about quotas? money yes <laughs> And the nihilists are there just being nihilists, right? Like not believing in anything. <laughs> like, <laughs> sorry, I just love everybody. But but, but <laughs> it, you're you're exactly hitting on it, Alex, where everyone is talking philosophy essentially all the time, including mm -hmm. the Sam Elliott narrator character. Um, and even, you know, Jackie Treehorn is there talking about his arts that he's trying to make. And they're like, they don't care about plot and they don't care about acting, and like I'm trying to make films like a real emotion yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> comes like boogie nights for like two minutes right it, yeah it does become boogie nights and then you just have the dude who is really about like listen you know they took my rug or they beat on my rug <laughs> and they took the money or like he really is dealing with what's right in front of him and i think you know i don't subscribe to the church of latter-day dudeism myself <laughs> but i would imagine it has to do with that right you know, take her easy, dude. Just you don't need to concern yourself with these larger questions. Just take what's right in front of you. Mm -hmm. There's almost like it's kind of like a blend of just more of a stoner archetype, but also a little bit of like a Buddhist philosophy of like, for sure, all that matters is the present. The only thing that's real is the present. You know, what's happening right now, the dude really doesn't seem that concerned about the past or the future. He's just Mm -hmm. doing his thing in the moment and that really is all he ever is concerned about yeah right well there is this sense something i actually appreciated in the music choice actually um this time around is the sense of 
characters who are stuck in the past. So you have the obvious with Walter, you know, who's still in Nam and that kind of thing. But then even the dude, it's like movies set in the early 90s and all of the music that either he listens to or the non-diegetic music that we hear is Dylan, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Eagles, Mm. Elvis Costello, Kenny Rogers, Santana. It's all music from like the 60s and 70s, Vietnam era. And I think there is a sense of this is a character who's like kind of never grown up, right? Like he is still Mm -hmm. in in a time of the past and it's set sort of at the end of the Reagan era and HW Bush, you know, kind of time where it was, it was this sense of like to be cool was to be on wall street and to have money and that kind of thing. And if you Mm -hmm. weren't that, then you were a slacker. You didn't matter. And I think that's sort of, there is something refreshing about a movie allowing the protagonist to be you know he's the man for his time and place like just to have someone who is just who's just abiding and taking her easy for all us sinners that kind of thing (laughs) so it's sort of like it's his flaw but also the thing that you were like you were saying alex that makes him charming right the the fact that he is okay with the world kind of he is just like accepting of things yeah it's making me think a little bit about when we were working on the iron man versus captain america video and you know that video brian you'd pitched it and it is about how those characters change over the course of those 20x movies or whatever. Mm-hmm. But that in general, one of the things we were talking about is that one of the things we like about superhero stories is a lot of time it's about how they don't change. Mm-hmm. And so like Captain America stands for what's right. And the compelling thing is watching him not be corrupted or whatever. And I feel like the dude is basically a superhero in that respect. Right. Where it's like he has his ideology. And as we're saying, he gets thrown in all these different rooms and people are trying to change him and convert him or or whatever, bring them over to their side. Right. But he is resilient in his dudism and he just wants, <laughs> you know, reparations for his carpet or whatever the hell. <laughs> I think that can maybe explain somewhat why there is this uh, celebration and like religion, as you're saying, Trisha, around him is that he is kind of unwavering in his ideals in a way that is is admirable regardless i think of what you think of those specific ideals but that that unfalteringness is is admirable yeah and is reasonably self-interested i think is also sort of like a part of this he is not selfish but he's not neither is he selfless where mm-hmm. like he doesn't go out of his way to do like altruism or charity or <laughs> right. right like he's not trying to be a hero Right. You get the sense that that's also something that the world is trying to like potentially put on him that he's not interested in. I think that that's another reason why he makes for a good private detective. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Which is basically what he is. Right. So this movie borrows quite a lot from both the Western genre. Coen brothers are masterful at mixing genres. Mm -hmm. Masterful. And they're at their best when they're doing noir, I think, and Western. And that's what this movie is. But the noir elements that make him a really good detective is that, you know, detectives take cases for self-interested reasons. And he takes the Lebowski case, (laughs) you know, for... Because people pissed on his rug. All right. Um, And so, like, and also, you know, he eventually, the scene where he gets called back to the Lebowski mansion to then, like, drop the money and find Bunny and all of this stuff is so, like, straight out of Raymond Chandler. And so many of the Mm. other elements really are, like, that twisty mystery kind of thing. But, yeah, there's, at the end of it all, he's getting himself into this for money. And he continually kind of keeps his eye on that, like, you know, he gets into Jackie Treehorn's party 
not by choice. They drag him over there. Mm-hmm. But then he's like, well, you're going to have to give me 10% of the money if I get it back for you. And that's very much like a private detective. There's a reasonable amount of self-interest. Like we buy that he would stay in it, even though he could get out. He could just like say, I don't care about the money. I'm not doing any of this. Like, right. He has a way out of it. But there's that that through line that makes this noir, I think, by definition. Right. Yeah, it definitely feels more. It feels like a noir a skeleton with a Western skin, right? Like the sort of like mm-hmm. Western presentation, but noir at the heart of it. Mm-hmm. And, and the way it even came to it came to be is the Lebo- the the Lebowski's. The Coens have <laughs> a friend who calls himself the Dude and right. is is like the inspiration for the Dude. And they basically just said like, "What's the most unlikely scenario we could put that character in?" And they said like a Chandler esque uh, noir. You know, he is like. The lazy sort of bumbling guy, but he's trying to solve mysteries and and all this kind of thing. So yeah, you get the the Chandler esque quality to it, which is why you get that Busby Berkeley homage, the uh-huh. whole dream sequence, which is like yeah, yeah. the choreographer of a lot of those like famous synchronized swimmer kind of you know montages <laughs> right. from yeah, yeah. the forties and stuff. But then you have this Western skin with Sam Elliott and the tumbleweed and the sort of the unwilling hero, right? Like the guy who doesn't want to get dragged into exactly. this as opposed to the detective who like, yes, I'll take the case. And then and then you have the philosophy on top of it and then you have the comedy on top of it. And somehow all of that mess <laughs> just comes together in a movie that actually feels like it works and it feels cohesive and it's it's bizarre. Becomes a delicious cocktail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Long Island iced tea of, of movies, right? It's just, <laughs> let's put everything in there. Put it all in there. That framework helped me a lot in this viewing because, you know, we all talked about it before deciding to do it. And you guys mentioned it is, yeah, in conversation with Bram Chandler, all that noir detective. The big sleep. And specifically the big mm-hmm. sleep. That helped me because I think that's maybe those references are like opaque enough or that, that I wasn't able to cue into that the first time. And I think if I had, I probably would have enjoyed it a lot more. And so this time watching it, understanding, okay, this is... A in conversation with a noir detective, all that stuff gives you a framework to kind of hold on to. That is what maybe is missing when you are making a Long Island iced tea of a movie. <laughs> it was a, there's so much that it's, it's hard to like figure out what's the one thing I can like grab onto and right. understand what kind of a movie this is. And so identifying that helped me a lot. And then it was remarkable how similar it did feel to The Big Sleep mm-hmm. in terms of that movie is famous for having a plot that is indiscernible and insane. Yes. <laughs> but I love watching it because whatever's happening right now is so entertaining. Yeah. And that's something that I think is maybe true of most Coen Brothers movies. Curious to hear your thoughts. But that for this movie anyway, it stood out to me that the film and I guess the dude at the same time are only concerned about what's happening right now there's like you said trisha there's what happened before matters because that's how we got here but there isn't a whole lot of forward looking to where this is all going or backward looking right it's just all about what's happening right now yeah there's no processing like there's not you know unless (laughs) unless he's sitting at the bowling alley talking to walter and donnie where Mm -hmm. there's a little bit of processing where we are kind of getting his thoughts on like, she kidnapped herself, man. Like, it doesn't make any sense. (laughs) So we're kind of getting hints of what he thinks about that. But there's, for most of the plot, 
it doesn't seem like there was a scene before or a scene after at all. Or the dude, yeah, is not concerned with it. I think another reference here that I read that they had was The Long Goodbye, which is another Chandler novel. Has been adapted a couple of times, um, most famously by Robert Altman in the 70s with Elliot Gould, which is an excellent, really, really excellent movie if you've seen it. Does feel very similar to that also. There's a beach scene in it at a rich person's like mansion that's like very similar to the Jackie Treehorn sort of Malibu. Stay out of my beach community. (laughs) (laughs) I love the the depiction of the Malibu police. Right. (laughs) Also, it's been about a year since our Quiet Place podcast. Can I blow your mind real quick? Yes. Sure. old guy in the woods. Uh Uh-oh. Yes. That's the chief of police of Malibu Police. What? What? That's crazy. (laughs) Wow. I love it. What a journey that character's been on. (laughs) (laughs) He really ended up in a dark place. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think that, you know, the Coens, they don't necessarily count on you knowing film language or film genre very well, but they almost do. 95% of the time, you're going to have a better experience if you come into a Coen Brothers movie with some knowledge of their filmography and a basic understanding of film history. So like... Yeah, you're just going to need to know a little bit about what a Western is or, you know, like Mm -hmm. I just mentioned Miller's Crossing, which is one of my favorites of their movies. And it's like a straight noir, very like lingo-y kind of all the dialogue is heavily stylized Mm -hmm. in like a noir kind of way. And so many of their movies are relying on you knowing that. And No Country for Old Men, which to me is their masterpiece, is relying super hard on you understanding what Westerns are, what they mean in the American cinematic landscape. Mm and how they're translating the Western kind of themes and ideas into, which, you know, No Country for Old Men is also noir and Western just rolled right in together in this, like, delicious nihilistic (laughs) neo-Western darkness. But yeah, it's not exactly fair to the average viewer to just plunk them into Lebowski or any other Coen Brothers movie because they're not really for general audiences they're not as accessible as a lot of other movies are. Right. Right. Yeah. Because I was thinking about No Country for Old Men, and I feel like it similarly has this kind of mode. And maybe this is kind of just what I'm experiencing when I'm watching it. But I'm in any given scene, I'm not wondering how these actions are going to affect something else elsewhere. Like the story is very focused, again, on what's happening right now and in the scene. Whatever the dramatic question of the movie is, it feels like it maybe could be answered right now. I don't know. I'm I'm still like trying to work through this, but it's kind of like the opposite of a Knives Out, right? Where obviously the whole point is you thinking ahead and thinking about, well, maybe that character could have done that and this, and you're trying to put this puzzle together in this movie and in No Country. All I'm ever concerned about is what's happening right in front of me because it's like the most important thing in this moment. It's interesting. And I feel like maybe there's something there that I need to go watch a million other Cohen movies right. and, and try to dissect and pull apart. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's something I thought about with, um, with movies like fear and loathing or days to confused where there's either no dramatic question or, or there is, and it kind of gets answered like in the first half of the movie. And you're just like, well, now where do we go from here? But it is this sense of like, but I care about each individual scene and sequence and that kind of thing. So I'm having fun. Big Lebowski or No Country, there is sort of a mystery of Big Lebowski that you're sort of like in the back of your mind, you're at least waiting for it to be solved, right? No Country, there is a villain and you're sort of hoping that the good guy is going to get the bad guy, that kind of thing. But then there are other movies where 
it almost feels like there is no plot you can actually point to. And that's that's tricky. And I don't advise that by any means. But the thing that I keep finding as I watch those movies is as long as I care about what's happening right now, and as long as it sort of like transitions to the next scene in a smooth and quick way that I'm not just, you don't have that like, well, pause, let's go, you know, refill or whatever, because like, it's like, no, we're jumping into the next thing and now we're into the next thing. Mm -hmm. And as long as like that pacing is good and stuff like that, it's not enough, but it does a lot of work just to have those individual scenes be, be really compelling in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I really identified with what you were saying, Michael, about like a kind of movie experience that, you know, Knives Out was a great example of this is all about what happened before and what's going to happen next. And mm -hmm. it's all about plot and all about trying to solve something that like you're really participating as an audience member in like the whole of the plot. There's another kind of cinematic experience that I also really value where you are invited to just be incredibly present with the scene and, and no country for old men is like the, the epitome of this in some ways of just like be present here in this scene the tension is incredible there's no music there's nothing for you to mm. hold on to you're just <laughs> here like see what happens and the coen brothers maybe do kind of play in that arena more than other filmmakers where it's not so much about you kind of always having part of your brain this bigger movie-wide perspective you're more just invited to like let that go you don't know where this is going. There's no clear direction to this movie. Just, you know, if you care about these characters and care about the dramatic question of this scene, like, just be here with us and be engaged with this. Right. So that's that's very interesting. And I, I do like movies like that, as well as the ones where I am doing the bigger, this is a plot that is going somewhere. And I'm like along for this, like, very clear right. ride. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Two things about that. I think that that's one of the reasons that the Coen brothers often make films that have a lot of music in them. Like No Country does not have any, but this movie has a ton. Right. And the dream sequences are just in here. There's a couple of them <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that truly do not have a plot. Right. They're just inviting you to look at things, basically. And, in, right. and inviting the dude to look at things <laughs> and, and try to process like a bunch of symbols and images that truly do not have a plot. And then songs are kind of, you know, used in Coen Brothers movies in a similar way where it's just like, we're going to pause what's happening for a second and we're going to sit in this mood and you don't need to worry about anything really. Just kind of listen to this song or characters are you know, listening to songs the way that we see the dude doing a few different times in this where he's like, you know, lying on his rug for a little while <laughs> and listening to bowling sounds. Right? <laughs> right. Like, or we mentioned, yeah, the whale noises and <laughs> movies like this. Oh, brother, where art thou? And, you know, obviously we talked about the one that has all the music in it, Lewin Davis. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Davis. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the, the Coen brothers do that really well. I also that's another thing, though, about like detective movies though speaking of like disjointedness is that 
when we're watching detective movies, what creates that feeling of, or especially the the Chandler-esque ones, that feeling of being in the moment is that the detectives almost never tell the audience their plans. Mm, Right. Mm -hmm. Like we're always left to just watch the detective go do a plan that he has without him letting us know beforehand what it's going to be. Mm -hmm. And Lebowski really does that where like sometimes the dude might have a plan when he walks into Maud's studio about what he's going to ask her for, maybe. Or like, you know, when he gets into Jackie Treehorn's place, you get the feeling he might be, is probably improvising. But he does end up like making kind of a plan and trying to get out of the situation with something in his pocket. But we're rarely told what the plan is. And so I think that that's the thing is that movies with traditional structural arcs and plots the audience always has to know what the plan is. We always Mm -hmm. basically need to know where the movie is going and detective books and movies like this are not in any way concerned with that. They're just like, watch the detective. He's going to go visit this guy. Who is this guy? You don't know. Just watch. (laughs) Right. right. And that's what's fun. (laughs) Since we are talking about the Coen brothers, like entire filmography, uh, as I mentioned on our knives out episode, I'm rewatching all their movies. So I started at the beginning and I, and I'm at Lewowski now and I've started trying to just be like, what do these movies have in common? What are their trademarks? Because their filmography is so bonkers and you can't even track, like even when you, it feels like they have like a, a period, you know, like the aughts were their mm-hmm. madcap comedy period with intolerable cruelty and lady killers and burn after reading and no country for old men's no in the middle of that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> their first and third movie were blood simple and Miller's crossing with raising Arizona in the middle. <laughs> like it's just, yep. you never know where they're going next. So I started making like a sort of checklist of, what are some of the trademarks in their movies? And I think it's cool because Lebowski has almost all of them. So we've got Big Boss Behind a Desk. That's in like every Coen Brothers movie almost. Yes, they do. Incompetent Criminals, of course. Like that's such a Coen Brothers thing. Then you've got the actual people, Steve Buscemi. <laughs> all the Johns, Goodman, Turturro, Polito, all of whom are in Lebowski. Francis? Uh, well, so right. Francis McDormand, we're lacking and we're lacking a ridiculous death. We have like an unfortunate death, but we don't have the like mm. accidental silly death, right? We do have ridiculous violence, though. Sh- yes, absolutely. <laughs> and of course, you have like Roger Deakins, Carter Burwell, like a lot of the, mm-hmm. the crew that is so responsible for making Coen Brothers movies so good. But the thing I've been thinking about the most is what I have come to call implied magic. Mm. Some of their movies, like Barton Fink or Hudsucker Proxy, they have real magic, like time stops or like a character is on fire or something, right. you know? But almost every Coen Brothers movie has this sense that something surreal and larger than life is happening. So like Mm. the biker in Raising Arizona, the cat in Lewin Davis just sort of like conveniently is there. And then there's two. And what's that mean? Like, what is the cat doing functionally from like a filmmaker gods, you know, omniscient point of view? Yeah. A lot of O Brother Where Art Thou. So much of O Brother Where Art Thou. Right. It's like what you're seeing isn't necessarily impossible, but there's it's strongly suggested that there's this like mystical force behind it. And I think the closest thing in Lebowski would be the stranger, Sam Elliott's character. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, he's ultimately just a guy sitting at a bar, but he seems to appear out of nowhere. He talks directly to us in a way that doesn't make sense. Like there's either a narrator or there's a character in the movie, but like Moonrise Kingdom, the narrator is also in the world of the movie. So it sort of weirdly bridges this gap. And he seems to be sort of omniscient, you know, that is what the Coen brothers do so well that makes people scratch their heads and like come back and keep like trying to pick apart things and they may just be having fun they may not even <laughs> like be doing these things on purpose but almost all of their movies have this sense that 
something is presented as this is like the the filmmaker god sort of like inserting this little thing into here in a way that we are we're not trying to hide it. We're not trying to be like, isn't it convenient that newspaper like landed on his lap? It's like, no, no, we are showing you the newspaper like sw- flying to purposefully land on this character's lap. We are doing that very purposefully. So I just think it's really fascinating. And Fargo and Lebowski actually have the least amount of that stuff of this era of their movies. But there is still that sense of like something about it feels larger than life, kind of mystical, kind of magical. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And it does add this weird texture to their movies and, mm-hmm. and it just makes it like you're saying you're is this real life is it not does it matter what does it mean like <laughs> it, it does kind of incept your brain with all these interesting questions and like you said there's the reveal of the stranger is very pointedly we're going to dolly in so uh-huh. that you can't see him arrive or leave and then dolly out to reveal like the film language is clearly communicating right there's something special here like this person appears out of thin air as far as we're concerned as the audience and that's so yeah it is interesting that it's something intentional but also hard to kind of put your finger on what exactly it's doing mm-hmm. inside lewin davis is an interesting example of all this because there is the cat itself kind of has this magical quality to it and then the movie also screws with you with the kind of time loop Mm-hmm. sensation where right it's like is this back to the same day at the beginning or is this a similar day mm-hmm. to the beginning and even the guy who kind of beats him up in the alley is you never see him clearly it's like a man in shadow so yeah it's it's funny because that movie like inside Lewin davis otherwise could feel very grounded and very much just like this is a straightforward character story period piece but they have these bookends that just make you like stop and you're like wait 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 a minute wait what just happened was that it was that actually a time loop is that a metaphor what does it all mean and then and then you have to go back and revisit it and it's almost like they're trolling you a little bit it's like <laughs> we almost gave you a straightforward movie but not quite and now you're gonna have to like keep thinking well and this is a big part of the reason why their films perhaps more than any other singular filmmakers that i can think of end up being read specifically through religious lenses mm. Because, Brian, you hit on it exactly. It has this parable parable mm, feeling, but yeah. also, yeah, exactly. Like, it feels like they're in conversation with a god of some kind, mm-hmm. right? In the sense of putting the movie together, the Coen brothers are kind of playing that god-like force by inserting these different sort of magical elements into the plots and, and forcing the characters to grapple with things that are outside of their control or understanding nearly always right yeah and that's part of the reason why their their criminals are so incompetent because usually there are greater forces at work and sometimes those forces are evil sometimes they're good you don't know but there yeah there's this sense that something much bigger is happening beyond the character's control and somebody's pulling strings somewhere right and so it elevates their filmography to almost, yeah, a religious plane by including those elements. You know, we talked when we were doing our top 10 films of the aughts, mm. which we just released, you know, a little while ago. And I was talking about how the Coens are my favorite filmmakers and they seem to know exactly what film is for or can do. Mm-hmm. Narrative, more largely the concept of narrative in human life is philosophical, right? Where it's, we engage with it on like a philosophical and spiritual level more than we do with certain other kinds of art because the nature of narrative is to put a point at the end of a series of events and create meaning, which is what we all hope for from our lives. 
That's Mm -hmm. philosophy, right? We create philosophy to explain to us what our existence means. And that's what narrative does as well, explain what a series of events means. The Coens are very much filling out that frame by kind of using film to play God or explore who God might be or what God might be or what is beyond the frame. The characters are always sort of forced to deal with that question. Yeah, absolutely. There's a difference between a character who is greedy and then they're chasing a dollar across the street and get hit by a bus and die. And you're like, oh, their flaw brought them down. Like that is their own doing versus a character who's just an asshole and just happens to get hit by a bus. And you're like, oh, that is the the filmmaker karma gods saying this character is punished for what they did, not actually as a direct result, but because we say so. We mm-hmm. as the as the, you know, mm. the creators of this world, the creators of the story, we say so. The one that's most frustrating and exactly everything you're saying, Trisha, is no country for old men because you are waiting for the filmmaker gods to step in and punish this character. And Josh Brolin doesn't do it. Tommy Lee Jones doesn't do it. Finally, there's a car accident. I remember in the theater, I'm like, okay, the car accident is the filmmaker god stepping in and saying, you can't get away with this. And what does he do? He gets up and he walks away because that's the point of the movie, you know? And it, but it's like, again, as you said, it's, they're using the film language to to make that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it, we see this all over their filmography, and but that to me is why No Country for Old Men is is so perfect. And this movie also feels so complex and rich is because they are actively raising those kinds of questions by the very nature of the movie. You know, we ha- we do lose somebody at the end of this movie. We lose Donnie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the best of us. He really is the best of us. And but not by violence, not by, we. you know, we're so sure that Walter pulls out a gun. You have a Chekhov's gun right at the beginning of this movie. And they're messing with dangerous people the entire time. They smash up that car. There's so much, like, they load the movie with risk, right? Like, right. and someone's going to get hurt because of the dude. Someone's going to get hurt because of Walter. And someone does get hurt, but not because of them at all. It's a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And you could argue Walter doesn't help the situation. Sure, right. sure, sure. The stress <laughs> was maybe Walter induced. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it is that, that really poignant, you know, we're left to process at Donnie's funeral. Like, what does it mean that the person who didn't make it out of this movie was Donnie? I don't know. I was going to say that I I feel like Donnie's death counts as a ridiculous death to me because of the reasons that you were just saying, Trisha, where Mm -hmm. so much is built up around violence and there's guns and someone's going to get murdered, like something bad is going to happen. And then it's the final battle when things are going down and it's okay, who's going to make it? Who's not going to make it? Is everyone? Oh, everyone's fine. There were no shots fired. Like okay, everything's fine. Mm -hmm. And then Donnie dies from a heart attack, like something tangential to the actual action. I cracked up at that because it's so (laughs) absurd, like the kind of irony there, I guess. Right, right. Like you were referencing, Alex, this kind of trolling thing where for me, it was almost like, surprise, there was heart at the center of this movie and you didn't know it until the last few like moments or last few scenes where suddenly your heart is broken because Donnie is dead. And I feel like that plays into everything that you guys have been talking about. And this idea of, like we were saying earlier, every scene is so focused on what it's doing now. It almost feels like the Coens aren't at any point trying too much to manipulate you emotionally or like to have a, any kind of melodramatic 
like, oh, this is so sad because of what it means for this person or that person. Mm-hmm. Like you're you're never in that headspace. Mm-hmm. It's it's like a little fintry in in that way where it's like there's the removing of the melodrama emotion in the moment, but the framing of all these things, like you're saying, where it's it's in conversation with narrative and what is story. Like these are movies that start by signaling we're going to tell you a story now, mm-hmm. audience, but then don't engage with that kind of meta awareness for the rest of the movie, right? Like once the movie starts, you're just in the movie world, except for these moments, like you're pointing out, Brian, where there's this little sprinkled like filmmaker God dust to Mm -hmm. remind you that maybe there's something (laughs) mystical. And then at the end, yeah, there's this kind of surprise twist where either, yeah, no country where he, he isn't punished, he gets away or Donnie kind of surprise dies and now there's been this tragedy that kind of came out of nowhere but that was also being built the whole time in a way that you didn't notice like Donnie's there is like a punchline for so much of it but mm-hmm. once you understand that he dies by the end suddenly the recontextualization of him like creates all this meaning and emotion a through line that I'm seeing in Coen Brothers movies is this kind of magic trick where it's the two plus two thing like we talked about in our No Country video. Along the way, you don't maybe even know what's being done to you. And then the final ingredient happens. Then you're, you suddenly see the whole picture and it's this crazy mind explosion. It's kind of how I feel anyway. Yeah. <laughs> at the end of this. And it's nearly always buried in comedy. There's right. Right. like... Yeah. That's the other sneaky thing that's never on display better than this movie, where they're just obsessed with the absurdity of everyone. Right. <laughs> like, right. And how how pointless all of our striving is. Yes. <laughs> right. Like the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible is about like vanity, all is vanity and sort of the pointless striving of life and human nature. The dude abides is a reference to that. Right. The Coens reference scripture all the time um, in their different work. And it's so funny because it is so like pointless and vain, you know, 90% mm. of the time in, right. in a Coen Brothers movie. Everyone is vain and everything that they do usually amounts to nothing. Right. right. Like, and that's <laughs> hilarious. They somehow make that hilarious. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know how they do it. Well, yeah, the last thing I'll say is the dialogue is so unforgettable in this movie for so many reasons. One, yeah, it is just funny in a way where you're like, you did you did comedy. Good job. <laughs> and, and then there are like running gag jokes like, you know, Hudsucker Proxy uh, mm-hmm. you know, for the kids. And this has so many <laughs> tied the room together. But then you also have this sort of I was thinking like if Sorkin is the musicality of the hypereducated, the Big Lebowski and the Coen Brothers is the musicality of the criminally inept. Right. Mm-hmm. Where it's just like, it's so purposefully written. And anybody who's been in a Coen Brothers movie will say, like, we didn't improvise, yeah. we didn't change a word. So you have, you know, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman say, oh, without the necessary means to, the necessary means to, like, and, uh-huh. and Walter will build up to this thing and he's going to make his also another thing, you know, like he interrupts right. his like big point to start saying something else. Just a character will say, like, you know, yes, yes, at the end of what they're saying, whatever. Like, there's just these weird little touches that they just keep. It's like the gift that keeps on giving. Because every time you rewatch the movie, you're like, why does he say that? Why doesn't he finish his sentence? Why does he say that word twice? Like, what's going on here? But it is that sort of, it is that comedy. It is that thing that just makes it fun and sort of like you're always engaged because it's never a scene of someone going, 
yeah, he took my rug. I think I'm going to go talk to him. And then maybe if I talk to him, he'll give me my rug back. It's not no scene is that in this movie, right? Like it's all built on this like constant conflict between these characters, even the Jesus, like you don't need him in this movie at all. But even the bowling alley is not a safe space. Now their enemy is there, right? Right. He's got a backstory that we have to talk about. And like, I'll talk more about that in my lesson. But yeah, there's the dialogue I think is so fascinating and especially this movie but all coen brothers movies in the way that it just feels elevated beyond what you would think to see from like bumbling idiots to having mm-hmm. a conversation yeah another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So that's, I think, a great way to get into lessons because that was basically my lesson is, you know, watching this movie again. And then I rewatched the first 20 minutes or so today, the first scene in the bowling alley where we're meeting Walter and Donnie and they have their dynamic. I was thinking about, this reminds me of the opening scene of The Social Network Mm. where that, like you're saying, Brian is the Sorkin version where everything is 2x speed and things Mm -hmm. are happening and the audience is kind of left to try to figure out who knows what and who wants what and why there's miscommunication happening. I feel like the bowling alley scene is slower but is doing just as much if not more work in terms of getting the audience to have to decipher what these people's relationship is because there are you know running gags and like donnie is a little bit behind and you can tell that you know that's probably a a constant problem that they have based on Mm -hmm. the way that walter reacts and so there's just so many dynamics happening through the dialogue, through the very purposefully, like you're pointing out, Brian, the the thoughts that get built up and then get cut off, you know, that cutting off demonstrates that this other thought is actually more important to this character in this moment. And that tells you a little bit of something about Walter, like that suddenly adds this third dimension when he's on his rant, but then like pauses to say, you know, that's not really the politically correct term for that. You know, that's (laughs) suddenly a a weird dimension of this character that wouldn't have been there had that not happened. The dialogue in this movie, everything that you just said, basically, Brian, it's hilarious, but it's also doing so much character work. And like we were talking about earlier, it's, it's what's making what is happening on screen right now, entertaining and compelling because we are having to fill in the blanks and figure out what does this mean and who is this character if they're behaving this way and we know this about them. It's just really yeah, fun to get to decipher the inner life of these characters via these often hilarious things that they're saying. So that's the most impressive thing to me in this movie. And I love the repetition in the dialogue too, Mm -hmm. where the dude is always repeating things that people have said to him, to other people. (laughs) And then even people are repeating things that they didn't hear other people say. So like, right. It's yeah, there's there's like certain phrases. I had some written down and I can't find them in my notes at this very second. But yeah, like certain phrases and words and ideas that they did not hear the other people say, but that have been said earlier in the movie in other scenes by other characters that end up getting brought back and sort of repeated. It just creates this, yeah, like refrain 
of the dialogue. Meta comedy where the joke isn't being made by the characters. The joke is being made by the filmmaker to you. Mm-hmm. Like you heard this character say that. You get that like on Archer and other comedies where a character will ask a question and then we'll cut to another scene where that character is in the middle of a conversation and their first line is answering the question we just heard from the right. last. Like little things like that where it's just like the, the writer sort of having fun with the audience saying, we're not saying the characters hurt each other, but we're just playing with you a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in The Big Lebowski, it kind of also helps create the story world a little bit it, you know, like mm. we were talking about earlier where it's the dude trying to navigate this world of other ideologies it's kind of showing how those ideologies permeate like all these different corners of mm. the world that he's navigating in if you want to like really go for meeting and all of that that's mm-hmm. what i would offer nice i'll piggyback off that because my lesson was really about story world and you know when you're doing this kind of sprawling convoluted raymond chandler type of Plots, to me, the pleasure of that kind of experience is the story world and particularly the characters that make up the story world. And I just think this, this movie is a great example of there's no boring supporting character. There's no plain vanilla person that the dude runs into on his journey. They're all really specific. They have an ideology or you know a perspective on life. Once again, Philip Seymour Hoffman. God bless him. He's so wonderful in that <laughs> opening so scene. Yeah. Like his energy is so palpable. Like the <laughs> nervous, overachieving energy of like serving his master and like trying to paper over all of the the flubs and the things you're not supposed to say. Yeah. There's a total mismatch of like culture happening. And right. he's trying to make it okay and it's not okay. <laughs> and 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 Julianne Moore's character, I just love her. It's like she I wandered love her in from so a, much. Mm-hmm. She's like from a David Lynch movie. And and it's just <laughs> It, and but she she also belongs in this you know big Lebowski universe in this corner of it. If you're gonna do this kind of a story, those supporting characters are your world building, and they're all really important. You know, they're they're all opportunities to draw like the boundaries and mm-hmm. all the corners of this universe you're creating. Yeah, that goes really well into my lesson, actually. Mine too. So this will be interesting. Keep it going. Keep go with the flow. Which is, I hope we don't have the same one, Brian, but. Uh, <laughs> Mine is maybe your scene needs one more person in it. Mm. There are like almost no scenes in this movie that only have two people in them. Right. Nearly every scene has at least three and some have two extra people in them or three extra people in them. You know, when the nihilists show up, you could have just one guy or even like one guy and a henchman. But it's like there's three of them. The dude is trying to keep track of all three of them and their marmot. And... (laughs) (laughs) It's a Pomeranian. (laughs) Right. It creates the comedy. It creates the texture for the scene. It creates the sort of like chaotic feeling. And nearly every scene has just random extra people in it that makes it so funny. Like Knox Harrington, the video artist. Oh my gosh, David Thewlis, who I love so much in this movie. But I was thinking exactly about that scene when he was in there. I was like, hang on. That's David Thewlis for one, who I never noticed that that was him before. Um, And he's tremendous in this. But yeah, it's like maybe your scene, you could have that scene between Maude and the dude and it would just be fine. And it would be funny. Those two characters are funny together. But when you put the Knox Harrington character in the corner for no reason Mm -hmm. except for the comedy, it builds out the story world and it makes the scene that much funnier and faster moving and more interesting. I don't know if this is like a hack for all comedy. I don't think it probably is, but it's something to think about that I had never really thought about up until this watch along. 
And Donnie is the example of that. Mm-hmm, you right, could easily right. have those two guys in the bowling alley arguing and it would get the plot done. But instead, when you put Donnie in the room, it changes their dynamic and it makes that every scene more compelling. Having Brant in the car when they pull, you know, the dude back into the limousine and it creates this richness and this hilarity where there's a third person at least who has their own agenda, their own personality and is inserting some kind of flavor into the scene. This goes well into my lesson, (laughs) which is also about all the characters, but specifically with how the Coens use opposites and three dimensionality, which is Mm -hmm. a lot of what you're talking about, Tricia. So right off the bat, we have the dude and the story world are opposites, right? So it's this character, but in like a Chandler thing, like that's an opposite. And as you were saying, Alex, he's lazy, but he's also active. So there's Mm. dimensionality there. But then you have dimensionality and opposites within characters. This is kind of what you're talking about, Tricia. So you have Walter and Donnie, like the two ends of this spectrum, just like Sean's roommates in Shaun of the Dead, like the person who's on this end of the spectrum, the person who's in this end, and I'm kind of the the straight man in the middle. And we've all been in a friend group, right? Where it's like you have the friend everyone lovingly kids and makes fun of and then the friend who's like is a little too aggressive and needs to calm down some of the time and we see that in movies too right we see ron weasley as the sort of bumbling character and then hermione as the like you guys are idiots character completely put together yeah in the middle right you have hooper as the beta male and quint as the alpha male and then brody kind of in the middle of of uh, the jaws trio and then you have putting characters together sort of unlikely characters like you were saying earlier alex brant and the dude or the big lebowski and the dude where it's like these characters shouldn't be in a room together let's see what happens when when they are but then on top of that you get this three-dimensionality within the characters themselves so in one i don't know 45 second scene we introduce this totally schlubby guy in like his pajamas or something and then within 10 seconds he reveals that he's a dancer and then in another 10 seconds he reveals that he's the dude's landlord landlord yeah right and you're just like so many things just happen with it first of all like you cast a just a hilarious actor who you're like i love watching you say these five lines or whatever so tentatively and then you have like the cop who laughs in the dude's face at the possibility of the police trying to solve a crime it leads <laughs> And then the other two cops, right, where one's like really excited and the other is just like, oh, the credence, you know, (laughs) like those two guys, (laughs) the bad guys were a band and they're like ineffectual bad guys, (laughs) but they're like scary. You know, it's like then you just have characters like David Thewlis or whatever, where you're like, let's just put someone weird in here, like you're saying, Trisha, to sort of zhuzh it up a little bit and like add add, like an other texture to the scene. Yeah, we talked about in Christmas Carol. It's not always bad to have a character who just shows up, does their narrative function, and then leaves. And this movie is full of that, right? Like, it's full of characters who show up to do, to like reveal some information and then take off. Don't try to put this many characters in your script, <laughs> but it is okay to have characters who show up and it, you can kind of use that as, as a way to have some fun. So when the dude decides to go to Larry Sellers' house to get his money back. You could have that scene be anywhere. It could be a phone call, but instead it's in the theater while they're watching (laughs) the landlord's performance, his dance cycle or whatever the hell he calls it. And so it's just like this hilarious payoff for this one line from this minor character who we never see again. Mm -hmm. But it's so fun. All of the opposites that are happening from everything from the character in the story world to putting two characters together who shouldn't be in a room together to here's a character who only has five lines, but that character themselves, 
they don't make any sense. They're a paradox. They're these sort of polar opposites just within this one character design. So much of that is what makes this movie work and why these characters are so memorable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it also goes back to what we talked about on our very first podcast, our No Country for Old Men podcast mm. available to, to patrons way back when, when we were yeah, wow. still learning. Learning how to use microphones. <laughs> right. All, all <laughs> kinds of things. Uh, turning them on, pressing record, all those things are good. <laughs> we learned that afterward. We talked about in that episode that all the minor characters that you even see, you know, for one scene, for 30 seconds, feel like they are real people with yes. real lives. And right. that adds this texture to the story world, like you're saying, Alex, and like you're saying, Trisha can make it fun and dynamic, all these things. And and I think in the Big Lebowski, it's also, as we identified earlier, if so much of the entertainment is watching him and his ideology bump up against these other worlds, having other characters in the scenes where we've also established what they believe and what their perspective is helps make that entertaining. So like Knox is there, but he's like laughing at the big Lebowski the whole time. Like it, it helps reinforce how not part of this world the dude is. I love how that scene ends. That's where it feels like David Lynch for a minute where they're just starts to like maniacally laugh at whatever's <laughs> oh, being yeah. said on the right. phone. Yeah. <laughs> it's like indefinitely. Yeah. It's Sandra from Medali, David. It's like the perfect caricature of like this weird art world that <laughs> yeah. you're just not right. a part of. Like right. you don't get right. to know what they're laughing about. It doesn't make any sense to you, plebeian. Yeah. Right. Or again, like Brandt, you know, before the dude meets with the big Lebowski, part of what that's doing is also setting up like the values of this world and right. it's literally mm -hmm. showing these are all of his accomplishments, this big Lebowski person. But it's also showing how desperate, like you're saying, Alex Brandt is to make everything okay and be a certain way. Like there's an expectation of how interactions are supposed to go. And clearly the dude is failing so that when he's <laughs> interacting with the big Lebowski, that's just adding that much more richness to that dynamic. And then like you're saying, Brian, where you set everything matters so much because having that be set in his office after we just got to see mm -hmm. all of those things adds that extra element. So it's all these little textural things that make something that could on the surface seem pretty plain and simple actually be rich and detailed and compelling. And I think that's what I continue to be very impressed by with the Coens and yeah. the movies. Yes. Why don't we go around and say what we've been watching recently? Trisha, what have you been watching recently? So I recently rewatched Say Anything, which I haven't seen in a while. And it's excellent if you have not seen it. It's really interesting. I would like love to talk to you guys about it. Yes, please. Because it's an interesting sort of flipped rom-com where it seems like it's actually from Lloyd Dobler's point of view, but it's not. Like, he's not really the protagonist. He doesn't really change. Anyway, really, really would love to talk to you guys about that as a script because it's a really interesting Cameron Crowe script. And it's, you know, his first movie that he directed. But what I found out when I was looking into it afterwards is that I had not actually ever seen Fast Times at Ridgemont High, mm. which oh. he wrote um, and which was directed by Amy Heckerling. Have we ever talked about a Cameron Crowe movie? Because no. mm -hmm. we need to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> I have lots of thoughts. Did you know that when he was 22, he went back to high school and undercover researched high school and wrote a book called Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which he mm. then adapted into this screenplay? Fascinating. 
there's like so much there's okay we have to talk about Cameron Crowe at a certain point. Things that you couldn't do in 2021. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, no. Also, movies you can't make in 2021. Yeah. Fast times at Ridgemont High, let yep. me tell you. <laughs> oh, boy. I thought it was really, really interesting. And it certainly doesn't have a plot, but still entertaining. And I'm glad that I got that one checked off my list. It was a pretty glaring omission um, in terms of 80s things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has really influenced the like teen movie genre in ways that i you know i'm like oh that's where this trope is from oh that's where this mm-hmm. line is from you right. know you, you get that experience of you're just like i've seen this thing a thousand times but i didn't know it right it's all from fast times at ridgemont high i'm here to tell you yeah. so yeah really really liked it brian i'm gonna ask you because i feel like there's a small chance have you ever done the say anything with the boom box? Like, uh, like to a person, like, like to in a real person. life. Yeah. No, I have not. Uh, okay. okay. But I have seen say anything many times. Michael, have you? <laughs> yes, I did do that <laughs> in college. Wow. Uh, it was like part of an inside joke. It wasn't like a hundred percent genuine, but <laughs> sure, there, sure. it was like, it was in our, like there's a quad area and it was like apartments. So it was like a big building of people. And the, the person we were doing this to was on like the, the ninth floor or something. So it was me in front of an entire building of people at like 11 o'clock at night. And people came to the window and they were like, oh, that's so sweet. And it was like, it was a big deal. Was it <laughs> Peter Gabriel? Like, did you play the song? Okay, yeah, good. of course. Nice. Yeah, ha- yeah, has to be that song. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Then you're just weird and creepy. <laughs> then you just start holding a boombox. <laughs> then you're a weird person. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Perfect. Brian, what have you been watching? So, as we are hopefully starting to creep towards normalcy in the world, I want to mention one of my favorite things that came out of lockdown, which was the Scott Pilgrim versus the World reunion table read. Mm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which you can watch on YouTube. It's, uh, I think, Entertainment Weekly's site. It was a benefit for water for people to provide clean water uh, around the world. And it was everybody from the cast. With the exception of Kieran Culkin, Brie Larson, and Johnny Simmons. I think pretty much everybody else was there. And Edgar Wright is there. Brian Lee O'Malley, who created Scott Pilgrim, is there. And he's doing sketches during the table read of like whatever that scene in the movie is and like sharing them with everybody. And, you know, I'm usually not super excited about this kind of thing. Like, I'm going to, for an hour and a half, just watch characters like on webcams with crappy microphones, just like read their lines, you know? But I was still, I'm like going to watch it. It's Scott Pilgrim, right? And I was so pleasantly surprised by the way this thing was was presented because they do the music, they do on-screen effects oh, nice. and text and like split-screening the characters diagonally, you know, the way it would be in the movie. Uh, they even cut to storyboard panels sometimes that Brian Lee O'Malley drew for the movie. Nice. And the editing is really sharp and it, they just do a really good job of recreating the feel of the movie while being just people on webcams hanging out. And then you also do get that element of these people just enjoy each other's company and they're just hanging out and they're making each other laugh and that kind of thing, which is just also really adorable because it's like all the best, you know, all all like my favorite people to watch (laughs) in one place. Did Chris Evans show up? Chris Evans showed up and so did Lucas Lee and they do not have the same face, which I don't understand. Chris Evans will like be watching just adorably with his like smiling Chris Evans face. And then suddenly he's Lucas Lee and he has this entirely (laughs) different face. And I'm like, how are you? You didn't go into makeup. (laughs) You can really change those eyebrows. Like, right. It's the eyebrows. And it's like the entire face changes, bro. (laughs) Ellen Wong brings it so hard. Like she is so (laughs) 
fun to watch. She and Mae Whitman especially are so committed to like, we are, yeah. we're doing this. We are doing our characters. And then like Michael Sarah, I'm not sure if he's ever seen the movie. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> every once in a while, his line readings, you're like, that, that's not really how this scene goes. But okay, you're fine. You're fine. You do good job. It's really, really fun. And I was so pleasantly surprised that I actually genuinely felt like I watched an sort of alternate cut of Scott Pilgrim when it was done rather than just I watched an hour and a half long Zoom call where people were just chatting, you know? Right. Um, so yeah, I highly recommend that if you haven't seen that and it's on YouTube so you can watch it anywhere. Awesome. Yeah, I remember that happening and, and flipping it on, expecting like you were saying, like just a kind of awkward Zoom call, but the production value does like suck you in and yeah. like, oh, this is really fun. They're capturing that magic again. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. Alex, what have you been watching? So I felt like it was my duty I guess at some point, just because all the tweets and on Discord and Justice League, like Jack, Zack Snyder's <laughs> Justice League. I guess I need to know what this is. I need to know what is going on here. It's in four three aspect ratio. Uh, it's four hours long. Like what? What is this? What was it? Taking a step back, <laughs> as I've said in our Marvel podcast, I'm I'm pretty fatigued and over the superhero movie cycle. I'm done with it i'm ready for it to be over i had not watched batman versus superman i had not watched the original justice league that was you know i guess apparently butchered by joss whedon i had very little context for this so i decided i guess i better watch batman v superman first the only version available on hbo max is the three hour ultimate edition so that's where i began wow alex and it was interesting it was an interesting experience because i i had very low expectations i've only heard negative things about batman versus superman and I went into it and, you know, yeah, it's Zack Snyder brooding male characters who are just dark <laughs> for no reason. But it's kind of nice cinematography in the scene. And the Hans Zimmer music is great. And like Wonder Woman is, is cool in this scene. And I like that she's in this and she's at a party in a cool dress. And so I was actually <laughs> kind of enjoying myself in Batman versus Superman until the ending when it did devolve into what these always have to devolve into, which is... We're going to punch each other and then punch a gooey thing for an hour uh, <laughs> until it's finally over. But then I was looking at people on Twitter talking about Justice League. And it's like, this is actually kind of a masterpiece. This is Zack Snyder trying to attempt like a Lord of the Rings scale thing. I mean, like the, the hyperbole around this movie is incredible. So I'm like, you know, OK, maybe there's something here. Maybe there's something they really got you. special here. And, you know, okay, fine. I'll get used to the four, three aspect ratio, even though nobody's seeing this on an IMAX screen. So it looks like a VHS tape aspect ratio, but fine. It's such a fascinating movie experience because it doesn't feel like a movie. The movie has like multiple parts. Like it's broken into, I forgot how many, I lost track of the chapters. So, you know, it's like, you know, part one and then like a phrase or like a line from that section of the movie. Part two, there's no clear sense of like why the movie is like broken up this way or like what is the rationale behind the chapter like divisions because they don't they don't feel like self-contained or like they have an arc within themselves they're just kind of there to like break up the four hours and it almost pointed to the entirety of the movie which is like a series of parts that aren't that don't cohere into anything really like it as i watched the movie there was no sense of like direction or momentum there it gathers some in like the second half i suppose but especially in the first half 
I, you know, I watched it in two sittings because I couldn't do it for four hours. And oh, so you didn't get the full experience. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I, yeah, sorry. I get there's this Zack Snyder aesthetic that is very clear and very there. And if you're into that, and I like that sometimes, like there are certain sequences in Justice League that I thought were like very well done action sequences. There were sequences that I thought were really fun. They got a uh, Tom Holkenberg junkie XL to come and do, you know, Mad Max kind of like percussive music. And right. that's fun. So there's plenty of moments of pleasure to be had. But it's just baffling to me that people can look at this four hour series of parts and say it's a masterpiece. I'm just like, it, it, it's a really fascinating. I think the part that broke my brain was the epilogue. Because this movie, to me, it felt like it had more endings than Return of the King. It just keeps ending. Like the second to last ending is like a really long dream sequence, like a super long <laughs> dream sequence where they that's where they insert Jared Leto's Joker. Spoilers. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. To do like annoying, like, joker stuff that we don't like as much because it's jared leto for like a long time and then it's like just a dream and like that's part of like the five endings i'm curious like why people think it is a masterpiece alex's Um, twitter handle is in the show notes yeah it's okay talk to me i do get that there is like seriousness and a epicness to the Zack snyder aesthetic that is appealing to me in some ways because there's something about the marvel aesthetic that is extra bouncy, extra Saturday morning cartoony. It's more on that side of the spectrum than the Christopher Nolan, right. like, we're going to go for dark and gritty. Whatever this is, <laughs> yeah, I can't get behind. Uh, so anyway. There's a really great Nerdwriter video called Batman v Superman, The Fundamental Flaw, and it's all about scenes versus moments. And I feel like it encapsulates so much of the Zack Snyder thing where there's a lot, mm. like he's really good at moments that are supposed yeah. to look like they mean things. Yeah. <laughs> Everything around them are completely meaningless. There are some genuinely good moments. Moments he can do. Yeah. I watched a different movie than that. Uh, I watched Stranger Than Fiction. Yay! Oh, it's so good! That's a very different movie. Which I hadn't seen in a long time. It's a really weird movie. It is good. Yeah. It's, we've talked a little bit about how like people used to make movies, like just standalone original films. And this was one of them. And it was disorienting watching this. Because it was like, this is just a movie. This is just self-contained, normal movie. And it's also from such a different time. Like, there, it, was, it felt like, like archaeology in some ways of like, this is a world pre-iPhones, pre-smartphone, pre-internet, like the way we think about it now. There are characters and it's all just fine and good. Anyway, so I enjoyed it, but it was trippy going back and, and watching it. But stranger than fiction. We don't have we don't have movies like that anymore. We really don't. Yeah, we have five hour four by three aspect ratio Snyder cuts now or four by three. I'm thinking of ending things, which is sort of like that's like the closest to what we have to Stranger Than Fiction these days. Right. Is like a weird, dark Charlie Mm -hmm. Kaufman movie. Cool. This has been our conversation about The Big Lebowski. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you to our patrons, as always, for supporting this podcast, making it possible. We want to say thank you to our producer, Vince Major. Thank you to our editor, Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker. I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet. Say hi. All Justice League, Zack Snyder-related things <laughs> go straight to Alex. Specifically, oh God. Alex. Alex. God. Don't bring us into that. <laughs> nope. I'm the sacrificial lamb. <laughs> <laughs> you brought it on yourself, man. 
Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Take her easy. Bye.